Please turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11, Hebrews 11. And if you don't have a Bible with you, get these guys' attention as they make their way down the aisle. They have some Bibles that they'll be happy to get to you so you can follow along. And those Bibles are marked at the passage we'll be considering in Hebrews chapter 11. It is probably the case that John 3.16 is the most well-known verse in the Bible. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Most of you know it. Many people know it. It is probably the most well-known of the Bible's verses. But I think a passage in Matthew 7 probably is a close runner-up, particularly in our culture. Matthew 7, Jesus said these words, Judge not that you be not judged. And why would that run a close second, particularly in our culture? Because our culture is one in which the worst sin that one can commit is to tell someone else they're wrong. You see, our pluralism, pluralism just meaning we're a pluralistic society, many different views, many different faiths, many different perspectives, Our pluralism has descended into something else, though, relativism. All truth is relative. There is nothing that is absolutely certain. And so it says that not only is one entitled to his opinion, but all opinions are equally valid. Tolerance, then, is the chief virtue in a relativistic culture. And it's especially true when the subject is spiritual matters, religion. Everyone has their own beliefs, and if anyone attempts to evaluate belief or even criticize it, he or she is denounced as intolerant and judgmental. Judge not that you be not judged. And so I ask you, can one's religious beliefs be evaluated? Can one's religious practice be judged, and properly so, biblically so? Can that be done consistent with the Bible? Well, as a matter of fact, you can't think at all without making judgments. If I ask you, what do you think about people who judge others? And if you say, well, I don't like it and I don't think they should do it, then you've actually made a judgment about them. You can't think at all without making evaluations, without making judgments. And what Jesus condemned in Matthew 7 was certainly not judging of all types, but rather a particular kind of judgment. There, in the context, he's condemning hypocritical judgment. And so with that understood, we can see clearly that the Bible makes all sorts of evaluations and judgments including about religious belief and religious practice. The Bible has much to say about false teaching and false teachers. And so consider, how can you know a false teacher from a true teacher unless you make a judgment? It is absolutely necessary to make judgment, but we cannot make hypocritical judgment. We must make right judgment. And in today's passage in Hebrews 11, we have two people mentioned, one that is commended and another 
who is condemned. Notice verse 4. By faith, Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. Abel's sacrifice was better than Cain's. A judgment has been rendered about the sacrifice of these two men, one deemed better than the other, and notice the issue about which they're being judged. Religion. Worship. God considered one worshiper's offering in the word of verse 4 better than the other. Now, why is that? Well, in order to understand that, we need to go back to the first part of your Bible. And so we'll come back to Hebrews 11, but will you turn to the first part of your Bible and the fourth chapter of your Bible, Genesis chapter 4. Most of you know that Abel, Cain and Abel, are the sons of Adam and Eve, the first two sons of Adam and Eve, Cain first and then Abel. And as now we begin our study in Hebrews chapter 11 on this issue of faith, in verse number 3 we saw last week of Hebrews 11, there's an allusion made to the very first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth because verse 3 of Hebrews 11 tells us, by faith we come to believe that the heavens and all that is in them was not made with pre-existing materials, but by the command of our God. And so in going through this catalog of what faith is and examples of faith, it goes to the very first verse of the Bible. And now in verse 4 of Hebrews 11, Cain and Abel are mentioned, which means two people are skipped, Adam and Eve. So what about Adam and Eve? Well, I have a theory as to why Adam and Eve are not dealt with in Hebrews chapter 11. And that is because Adam and Eve had a relationship with God different than did their progeny. They walked with God, if you remember, in the garden. And there's a sense in which they did not live by faith. There's a sense in which they lived by sight. And you remember that 2 Corinthians chapter 5 tells us that we walk by faith and not by sight. That faith, Hebrews 11 verse 1, is being confident of what we do not see. And there's a sense in which Abel is actually the first human being who walked by faith with God. Banished from the garden because of the sin of his parents passed on now to Adam and Eve's progeny. They would now follow God based upon the promises of God, believing those or not, and having the consequences that flow from that belief or unbelief in their lives, just as is the case with you and me. Remember that faith is belief in what God has said that we cannot see about ourselves, about himself, about our circumstances, both in the present and what he has promised for us in the future. The word faith in your Bible means belief. It's about what you believe. As you come to this first part of your Bible and these two characters, Cain and Abel, we're going to read in just a bit that they each brought a sacrifice to God. And when Hebrews 11.4 says one was deemed better than the other, it's referring to this passage in Genesis chapter, chapter 4. Now let's look together at some of what is said about their, their 
story. Verse number 2 of Genesis 4. Abel kept flocks. Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. The question becomes, why did God look on favor, look with favor on the one offering, but with disfavor on the, on the other? That goes back to instruction that undoubtedly God had given to these two boys, and particularly through the example and words of their parents. Now, why do I say that? Because God had already set forth an example in the lives of Adam and Eve that we'll see in just a bit. And also, Abel is commended in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 4 for giving his offering, it says, by faith. You may remember that faith comes this way. Faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word. And so the faith, the belief by which Abel acted must have been based upon something he had been told by God. Something that he had learned about the way God wants to be worshipped, the kind of sacrifice that God will honor. And so by faith, believing what he had been told, he offered that kind of sacrifice. What kind of sacrifice was it? It was a blood sacrifice of the fat portions of the flock that he kept. Now, why was that important? Going back to chapter 3, if you look just above chapter 4, at the end of chapter 3, after the entrance of sin by Adam and Eve into God's good world, verse 21 says this, The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. And this is a, an early allusion in your Bible to the necessity of blood sacrifice to cover sin. And God himself slew an animal and gave coverings of skin to Cain and Abel's parents, Adam and Eve. Further, Cain was 129 years old at the time of the incident we read about in Genesis 4. Which means he had about 100 years of adult life to know the deal. To know what it was that God expected and what God approved and what God did not approve. Now I know I have to stop for just a moment for some of you and say, come on, 129? Some of these people lived hundreds of years in the early part of your Bible. How can that happen? Doesn't that show that some of the Bible, at least, is fictitious? It does not. This happened at the beginning of the Bible and at the beginning of the human race for good reason. Because although sin has now been committed and because it has environmental effects, which we experience to this day that God prophesied in Genesis chapter 3, there would be a curse upon the earth, a curse upon the ground. Romans chapter 8 tells us that the the earth convulses as a result now of sin having entered God's world. But it was still a relatively new phenomenon. 
And they didn't have the environmental effects passed on from generation to generation to generation that afflict us. And further, the gene pool then had not been as affected as it is with us now, these many, many millennia later. And so they lived very long lives, and Cain was 129 at the time of the incident recorded in Genesis chapter 4. And it tells us in verse number 3 of Genesis 4, notice again, it says, in the course of time, when it says there in the course of time, the phrase is literally at the end of days. At the end of a certain period of days, and it appears to be at a prescribed time when God had told Cain and Abel to bring sacrifice. And so Cain knew well from the example given to his father and his mother. Cain knew because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So he had been instructed about what God desires and what God expects and what God would approve. And God had apparently set a time for sacrifice to come. And this was one of those times. But instead of coming with the sacrifice that God required, Cain came with his own sacrifice, with his own idea about what would be and should be pleasing to God. I say in your outline, and I encourage you to follow along as we look at this passage, that God expects us to worship Him with proper actions. God has not left us to grope in the darkness about what He wants us to do when we come to worship Him. And friends, we do not have the right to make it up as we go. We do not have authorization to tell God, I have a better idea. God has made clear what He wants from His people, and He expects us to follow what He says in our actions. Now, can you tell I get a little worked up about that? And the reason I do is because there is no more important activity on earth than for God's creatures to render worship to Him. And if we were made, and we were, to worship God, and He has told us how He wants to be worshipped, then we dare not bring our own notions into the worship of a holy God. He expects us, as He expected Cain and Abel and everyone in between, to worship Him with proper actions, actions that He has prescribed. And further... He expects us to worship Him with a proper attitude. Again, chapter 4 of Genesis. And notice the attitude with which Cain came before the Lord. Verse number 5. Cain and his offering God did not look on with favor, so Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. And then the Lord, verse 6, said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? Verse 7, If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. Do you see what's happening here? God had told them what to do. Cain refused to do it. Having refused to do it now, God rejects his sacrifice. But a merciful God is still pleading with this man. 
Cain, will you do right? You've offered an improper sacrifice, but I will still spare you if you will do right. I'm making a plea, an appeal to you to turn, to repent, and do what I have required of you. But Cain refused. Apparently, Cain liked being angry, like many of us. I enjoy it for a while. Let me seethe for a while before I get it straight, if I ever get it straight. Cain liked being angry. His mom, Eve, had to be talked into sinning. And here you have her son who cannot be talked out of sinning by God himself. Abel had a different attitude. Verse 4, Abel, Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. He brought the, the fat portions, the best of what he had from what God had required, a blood sacrifice. Friends, hear this. Attitude matters in our service toward God. It is not just that we do the right thing, but we do the right thing for the right reason and with the right attitude. That's why 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 7 in your New Testament says, God loves a cheerful giver. God does not want our money grudgingly given. God does not want our worship grudgingly offered. Attitude matters when we come before a holy God who sees our hearts and knows our thoughts. The attitude matters, but only on the basis of a proper sacrifice. Now, here in the Word of God then, Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 4, we're brought face to face with an evaluation of the sacrifice, the worship of two individuals, Cain and Abel. One is better than the other because of the actions and because of the attitude. Now, I'm going to warn you now that this is a culture clash alert. That what I'm going to say to you in the minutes that follow is going to clash completely with what our culture believes. It may clash with what you believe as part of our culture. But I believe it is absolutely and thoroughly biblical. You see, God says there is one way through which you approach me. And that is through Jesus Christ and Him alone. And through His sacrifice alone. There are no other ways to come to God except the way that God has prescribed. And God expects us to approach Him on the basis of what He has said. Jesus Christ is the only way. And the Bible issues warning to those who take, notice the phrase in Jude 11, the way of Cain. The way of Cain, the idea that I can roll my own before God. That I can come my own way. That there might be some other way to God, to heaven, to a relationship with Him, other than what He has said exclusively through Jesus Christ. Now, has He indeed said that a relationship with Himself comes only and exclusively through Jesus Christ? Allow me to rehearse with you what the Bible says. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth 
and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. You don't bring me anything else. You won't stand before me with anything else other than Jesus Christ. The Bible further says, Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. There is one God and one mediator between God and men. The man, Christ Jesus. Philippians chapter 2. God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. Now friends, that clashes with what our culture believes. Our culture believes as long as you are sincere, you can come to God any number of ways. And God says, you come to me the way that I have prescribed. And so, that great theologian, Oprah, One of the mistakes that human beings make, she says, is believing there's only one way. Ha, missed that one. And failing to realize that there are many paths to what you call God. One person's path might be something else, and when she gets there, she might call it the light. But her loving and her kindness and her generosity... Brings her, to the, brings her to the same point that it brings you. It doesn't matter whether she called it God along the way or not. She said that on her show, and an audience member says, you say there isn't only one way, there is one way, and only one way, and that is through Jesus. And Oprah responds, there couldn't possibly be only one way with millions of people in the world. But it's not just talk show hosts and New Age spiritualists like Oprah. By the way, that's what she is. But it's evangelists. I mean, people, preachers. So Larry King interviews Joel Osteen. We've had ministers on, says Larry King, who've said you either believe in Christ or you don't. If you believe in Christ, you're going to heaven. If you don't, no matter what you've done in your life, you ain't. And Osteen says, yeah, I don't know. And then Larry says, well, what if you're Jewish or Muslim and you don't accept Christ at all? You know, I'm very careful about saying who would and wouldn't go to heaven. I I don't know. Larry goes on. If you believe you have to believe in Christ, they're wrong, aren't they? Well, I don't know if I believe they're wrong. I believe here's what the Bible teaches, and from the Christian faith, this is what I believe, but I just think that only God will judge a person's heart. He says, I spent a lot of time in India with my father. I don't know all about their religion, but I know they love God. And I don't know. I've seen their sincerity. So I don't know. Well, here's a way to know. You've got to read a book. 
that's got some information in it to help you out with that so that you know. You see, friends, there's a reason that we have missionaries in India because I know that the only name under heaven whereby one can be saved is through Jesus. Further, the most famous evangelist in the world over the last five decades was asked this question. What do you think is the future of Christianity? His answer was, I think there's the body of Christ. And this body of Christ comes from all the Christian groups around the world and outside the Christian groups. Well, now I'm intrigued how the body of Christ is formed by those outside of Christian groups. And then he goes on to say, I think everybody who loves Christ or knows Christ, whether they're conscious of it or not, they're members of the body of Christ. God's purpose for this age is to call out a people for his name. And that's what God is doing today. He's calling out a people for his name. Whether they come from the Muslim world, Buddhist world, or the Christian world, or the non-believing world, they are members of the body of Christ because they've been called by God. They may not even know the name Jesus. But they know in their hearts that they need something they don't have, and they turn to the only light they have, and I think they're saved. And that they are going to be with us in heaven. Now, friends, you need to ask yourself, does that come close to squaring with the Word of God? And I tell you that to tell you we live in a day in which people believe that they can approach God any way they feel. And it's being endorsed even by religious authorities. Now, just theoretically... Couldn't God save people without having them hear the particular name of Jesus? The answer to that is theoretically yes. But if God can do whatever he wants, and he can, then the same God can bring to people someone with the message of Jesus right at the time they need it, at the very point when they will respond to it. Can he not? And has he not? Acts chapter 10 in your Bible, God made an arrangement for a man named Cornelius to hear about Jesus. And he sent Peter, and he said, Peter, there's going to be a man there, and you're going to tell him about me. And he did. And he responded, he and his whole house. God can do it any way he wants, but God wants to do it this way. We look at this exclusivity often as something ugly and confining and restrictive. But just think of it this way, friends, all right? We have a world that is dying without Jesus, a world dying without Jesus. And the way God sees that situation is this. It's not a bunch of people who are doing the best they can and he'll accept whatever they offer to him. God doesn't see it that way. Here's how God sees it. God sees these as people who are Haitians, who've been buried in rubble after a devastating earthquake. 
and they desperately need rescue. They need to be saved. They need to be delivered. They need someone to go to them and to help them and to rescue them with the only solution for their plight. Now, in the physical realm, we think about a devastating earthquake and we applaud those who go to rescue. And God says, in the spiritual realm, there are people who need to be rescued and the only means of rescue is the good news, the gospel that is centered in Jesus Christ and in Him alone. Now, in that scenario, it's not something confining, restrictive, ugly. It's something beautiful. And that's the way the Bible looks at it. Notice what the Bible says. How can they call on the one they've not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they're sent? And then it says this, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. It doesn't say, I'll take whatever you offer. How beautiful are those who are willing to take the only message whereby we must be saved and give it to those who desperately need it. One of the reasons people get off on this, our culture is just relativistic, as I said, but also because we have a misunderstanding as to why people are where they are. Sometimes have a misunderstanding about why people are what they are, How sinful are they? How desperate is it? The Bible says it's absolutely desperate. Without the message of Jesus, and without responding to the message of Jesus, there is no hope. It's absolutely desperate. But then, where they are, the other side of the world, and we think to ourselves, why would God hold someone responsible because they just happen to be born in a particular place, unlike America, that at least at that point doesn't have the light of the gospel? Well, here's the error in that premise. Nobody just happens to be born anywhere. As a matter of fact, there's nothing that just happens in God's world ever at any time. Did you know that? And so here's what the Bible says. From one man, he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he, God, determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. Friends, there ain't no accidents in God's world. And there is no one, no one, who is groping for God, who would love to come to God, if only they hadn't been unlucky enough to be born in the wrong spot. The Bible says there is no one who seeks God. No, not not one. It is God who seeks people, not the other way around. God expects us to worship Him as He has prescribed, with proper actions and proper attitudes. And God says to us, this side of the cross, there is one basis upon which you can come to Me, and only one, and that is the final sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross, which alone atones for the sin of humanity. God's way is the only way to be saved. And it's the only way to live that. You see, this faith for which Abel was commended is not just faith to be saved. 
but it's also faith to live. Notice back now in Hebrews 11. By faith, he, Abel, was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offerings. You see, it's not just the issue of atonement and sacrifice and worship, but it is also how we live. Do we live rightly? And that's why Jesus called Abel righteous Abel. And God commended him as a righteous man, Hebrews 11 and verse 4. God's way is the only way to be saved, and it's the only way to live after we are saved. Here's what that means for you and me. We don't make up the rules, friends, for any aspect of our lives. Not just how we come to God in salvation, anything else as well. How am I going to parent these children? And who's going to instruct me on that? The answer should be the Word of God. And by faith, believing the Word of God, I will raise these children the way you have told me, Lord God. How am I to be a wife, a husband in my home? The answer is according to the precepts and the principles of the Word of God, which I believe and I act upon. How am I to behave as an employee to my employer? Does God have anything to say about that? Absolutely he does. It's based upon what he says and what he commands. And that we believe, that we have faith in, and therefore we act upon. How am I to behave as a consumer? The stuff that I have, the money that I have. How am I to use it? To whom does it belong? For what purpose has he given it? Does God say anything about that? He absolutely does. By faith, we are saved and we approach God. And by faith, we live in every aspect of our lives. That's why I say in your outline, God expects us not only to worship as he requires, but he expects us to live as he has instructed And if we do that, if we are people who approach God and walk with God on the basis of His commands, not rolling our own, not making it up as we go, not saying, I know the Bible says, but. You know, just get rid of the but. I know the Bible says, but I've got another idea. Or it really doesn't work out in practice. God says it. That settles it. And people of faith believe it. God expects us, as people like that, to have an impact on others by our example. Notice what verse 4 says again of Abel. By faith, Abel still speaks, even though he, Abel, is dead. The faith of this man, acting upon his belief in what God has said about how God wants to be approached and how he's to live his life in an ongoing way after that, is memorialized in the pages of Scripture as an example to us. And we are to be an example to others who will follow after us. May all who come behind us, the song says, find us faithful.
May the footprints that we leave lead them to believe. And the lives we lead, may they inspire them to obey. A faithful man's impact lives on after he has died. Many of you were at Dan Elwert's memorial service a few weeks ago. One of the stories that I had been told just the day before by one of his sons was I shared at that service. But it was about Dan uh, having worked for a boss who asked Dan to do something unethical. And Dan had a large family, eight children, but he refused to do this unethical thing. And he told the boss, I can't do it. Dan came home and he told his family, I'm probably going to lose my job. He didn't lose his job right away, but they made things difficult for him and made it clear that he needed to move on. He did. He lost track of that boss, but one of the phone calls that he received when he was in the hospital was from that man who said, I want you to know that I came to Christ. And I came to Christ in part because of your example of faithfulness. A faithful man's legacy lives on after he is gone. What kind of legacy are you going to leave for those behind you? The Bible warns us, friends, do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. Why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil, his brothers were righteous. In our concluding moments, We've said much about the fact that God requires that we approach Him one way, that we have a relationship with Him one way, exclusively through Jesus Christ. And so it is absolutely necessary that we not leave this time without making sure that every person here has that opportunity to bring sacrifice before God in the way that He describes. And how is that sacrifice brought? You don't bring it, you receive it. It's been offered by Jesus, and you receive it. And because that's true, no one will stand ever stand before God singing Sinatra. I did it. I did it my way. You don't do it your way. Even Sinatra didn't sing Sinatra. You do it his way. And his way is through Jesus. How can I have a relationship with God then? It is through the sacrifice that has been made on your behalf by God the Son, Jesus Christ. You realize you're a sinner. Recognize what Jesus did for you. You repent of your sin. And what that means is, Lord, I want to follow you no longer doing it my way. I want to go your way. And you receive Jesus Christ into your life. We're going to bow and pray. As we do, you can pray a prayer like this. It's not a magic formula. It's your words from your heart to God, acknowledging your sin, that Jesus is the rescuer, the one who saves you from your sin. Receive Him. Bow before Him. And He will change your heart. Christian friend, this is a time for us as we bow before the Lord to acknowledge that we are enculturated very often. We're infected by our culture and we think we can make up our own ideas when God has given us this glorious book, the Word of God, to tell us about how we come to Him and how we live in Him. Let us confess that. 
and commit ourselves to following him in his word. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this sacred time of looking into your word. And for the example of Abel, a positive example that you have memorialized for us in your word. And for telling us the negative example of Cain, the way of Cain. Lord, it is a sobering reminder for us because we live in a time and in a place that is completely saturated with relativism, that there is no such thing as absolute truth and absolute claims are considered intolerant and making judgments of anything, let alone one's worship, is completely off limits. But Lord God, you do it throughout your word. And you, are, you have full authority to judge all aspects of your creation and your creatures. And you tell us to be discerning and to be wise and to live according to the dictates of your word. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us as your people who claim your name to be more enamored with your approval than the world's approval. Help us to care more about what you expect and what you think than what our friends think and our family thinks and our co-workers think. Lord, help us to be loving people. Help us to reach out to those that you bring in our circle of influence. But help us, Lord God, to be people of truth and fidelity to the God of truth. And so, Lord, we ask you to forgive us that we've been enculturated, that we've been tempted and sometimes failed in following the, the way of Cain, making up our own ideas about whatever the subject may be. Help us to recognize when it comes to a relationship with you, you are absolutely intolerant. That people will come to you your way or no way. And so help us to be vigilant in giving to those in our spheres of influence the only hope for salvation, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I pray in this sacred moment that there may be some who are coming to you for the first time, who are recognizing their sin and recognizing that all of their attempts to come to you their own way are absolutely futile and will be rejected by a holy God who is angered by our rejection of your free offer of salvation in Jesus. I pray that with empty hands, bringing only their sin to you, they are receiving the hope that is found in Jesus. And we pray in His name. Amen.